You're listening to episode 152 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? I am so excited to release Maureen Johnson's episode today. My conversation with Maureen was so special, not only because Maureen is a kick-ass, hilarious storyteller, but because our conversation was also live-streamed to our 88 Cups of Tea Patreon supporters for the first time ever. The super storytellers who signed up for the Snails with Mail tier over in our Patreon got to see me and Maureen video chat with each other, so it really felt like they were right there with us. And they got to leave comments in the chat box in real time and even drop in a few questions for Maureen to answer directly. For some behind-the-scenes tidbits, the original live stream video went over two hours and I stripped the audio from the video to edit it down so that it's podcast-friendly. As a heads-up, the audio quality gets a little glitchy at times, but the content is still awesome, so be sure to stick around because Maureen shares really amazing stories and writing advice. If you're wondering how you can best show your support for 88 Cups of Tea, signing up as a patron is honestly the best way right now. Head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up at whichever tier feels right for you. We just recently added early access to upcoming episodes for the $8.88 tier in addition to other cool benefits. I have interviews scheduled with authors like Naomi Novik and Natasha Nyan and many more, and I'm releasing their episodes to the public in 2019. Once these interviews are edited, you'll get first access to listen to them before anyone else does. Again, that's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. If you'd love to show support in another way, I'd be so grateful if you could head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe to our show and give us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it really helps our show become more visible to new listeners. And honestly, every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea. So thank you so much in advance. Before I formally introduce Maureen Johnson, I'm so excited to highlight one of our listeners who took the time to write a very thoughtful review for us on iTunes. This storyteller's username is C.V. Rod, and she wrote, I'll be totally honest here. I've never thought I would enjoy a podcast. I always said I would just stick with music because who wants to listen to people talk while driving? Well, now look who's eating her words. It's me. I'm eating my words. I'm currently working on the outline for my very first novel baby, and I came across this podcast after joining every possible writing group on Facebook that I could find. I came across the 88 Cups of Tea group and saw that there was a podcast that I needed to listen to in order to join the group. I reluctantly checked it out and listened to my first episode on my way home from work one night. I smiled, I laughed, nodded in agreement, talked to no one in particular, and haven't listened to music in the car but maybe 10% of the time since then. Yin is a perfect host and I have yet to come across an episode that wasn't equal parts entertaining, inspiring, fun, and just perfect all around. I always come away with something new to apply to my writing and life in general. Listening to this show helps me push past those slumps and pave my way through those writer's blocks. So here's a huge thank you to Yin Cheng. We can tell that you've put your heart and soul into this podcast to help lift and inspire others and your efforts are appreciated more than you will ever know. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you so, so much for that incredibly heartfelt, thoughtful, and amazing review. I am so honored and blown away by your kind words. You completely made my week. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast and giving 88 Cups of Tea a chance and for being a part of our community. I am so happy to have you with us. Now on to today's guest, we have with us Maureen Johnson, the legendary New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of several YA novels, including 13 Little Blue Envelopes, Truly Devious, and her upcoming novel, the sequel to Truly Devious, called The Vanishing Stare, that will be released on January 22nd. Today, Maureen tells us the story about how she fell in love with storytelling through writing and acting. We dive into why creators and artists can and should ask for support from their audience. She talks about her lifelong obsession for murder mysteries and how that inspired the plot for her new mystery series, Truly Devious. She gives us detailed technical advice on how to go about crafting a mystery novel and a series and answers listener questions that are so helpful to anyone working on craft. Okay, now let's get right into it. All right. So Maureen, you want to kick it off and let us know how you first fell in love with storytelling? Oh boy. So let's go back to the beginning. I was a real indoor kid and it's just how I see life. Life is the stories that we tell ourselves about what's happening. I always was one of those kids that it wasn't what was happening. It was the story I could tell about it or the story that was going on in my head or at home, the story around the dinner table that was the recreation of the event. It's just how my brain seems to have been wired. And I think it's how most of our brains are wired. It's how we perceived what happened and what we take from it. So how we tell the story about it, that shows the lesson we learn. Also, the various ways you can reconfigure events and the different lessons you can learn from it. Like we had some technical issues. There's the dog, sorry. Getting into this. And it's always the story you can tell about. And then this happened and this happened. And then it's a way of life. Storytelling is a way of life. And it also is helpful if you have zero other skills and you're that kid. When I was at camp and kids were playing sports, I straight up brought needlepoint. Okay, needlepoint. And I would sit there and I could take a kickball direct to the head and not miss a stitch. You know, just I'd be like, okay, you know, yeah, not good at needlepoint anymore. But I'm just saying, I was just like, uh uh. I'm not playing any of these ball things. Like, I'm sure that you're getting out some energies there or, you know, enacting some uh, important internal struggle, but I am going to sit here and make a house out of thread. And that's badass. Is it? I think it is. I think it's pretty badass. You just keep going. Man, I think if I got hit in the head while I was doing that, I'd probably take a break and cry and then feel bad for myself and then a full day to recover and then go back. It's do what I'm doing. Like that was me as a kid. I have this face that shows no reactions. I have a kind of dead expression. That's just my natural gift is this sort of. That looks great on screen for actors, by the way, for TV. I was told that I need Botox on my forehead and to put a masking tape as I'm practicing my sides by one of my coaches that I worked with out in LA. I only saw him like twice and I did not like him afterwards. And he's like known to coach a lot of working actors. And he told me, he's like, Yin, your forehead is moving way too much and you need to have the expressionless and only have emotion down here or else it looks too exaggerated. 
and you should think about Botox. I was like, bitch, I'm only 24. Like, you know, he was telling me this when I was like pretty young. You're lucky. You have that beautiful flawlessness that you don't need any work on. No, perfect. No, it's not flawless. It's just that I'm dead outside and I have a vivid inner life. And I think that's another part of storytelling is it's all like cartoon butterflies happening in here. Like if you've ever seen the video game Loco Roco, which is just a bunch of happy blobs that go, that's what it's like inside. It's a wonderful thing. Your mom is a nurse and your dad is an engineer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were they encouraging of this storytelling side? My upbringing was very restricted. I went to an all-girls Catholic school. I basically wasn't allowed to do anything. Like, I wasn't allowed to drive. I wasn't... I was constantly the one that was like, I am digging the escape tunnel in the yard. But my parents did have one philosophy, which was, as long as I did well, they didn't interfere with any of my academic choices because they're like, well, she knows what she's doing. They had confidence. They're like, as long as I did kind of well and I always was kind of self-directed that they were like well she is serious about this so and also I was so different from them that they were kind of like yeah we don't know what to do with this one so I mean just she seems to know what she's doing so I guess let her get on with it because I was just very like head down in a book and I you know would just read all the time and I just had my own little engine and their attitude seemed to be she seems to know what she's doing we're not 100% sure what that thing is, but she does seem to know. So I guess we're just going to let her do it. My dad would drop hints like, hey, wouldn't you like to go to school and become an engineer? They do need women engineers, you know? And I was like, that's not going to happen. And he was like, <laughs> have you considered it? And I was like, I need to repeat that that is not going to happen. I always talk about becoming a nurse because I think nurses are amazing. My mom's like, Wait, you're not a nurse. You're a writer. Like, you got to do wow. you got to do the thing that you are. She's like, I was born a nurse, and you were born a writer. She's like, I was a nurse from the get go. I was just that's all I wanted to be. And she's like, Look, the real job is, you know, you walk in and someone barfs on you. You know, <laughs> she's like, I can see you being very interested in the academic side, but like, people poop on you. You know, <laughs> that's what happens. Like, it's a lot of like day in and day out. And I'm like, I know, but you get to give people needles. She's like, I do. And also they poop on you. And that is something you need to remember. We are all, I guess, fairly self-directed people. Also, I'm just stubborn. So I was just going to do what I was going to do. Be stubborn. Yes, you can be stubborn. And I, I was pretty damn stubborn too. Like I was refusing to do things. I would cut class. I would get into detention every day. Like my dean, I see him and I'm just like, yes, I get it. You're going to put me into detention today again. Like that was me. Wow. Like that's, I was stubborn in that way. And I was just like, all right, then throw my ass into detention. Like I literally almost got expelled. That was so terrible. When I hear parenting skills and ways, and I'm particularly interested because I'm like considering, do I want children? Do I not? Like that's something that my girlfriend and I have been talking about. So just hearing how your mom and dad were raising you, that's so inspiring. Just to hear that they were there to guide you, especially when you needed it, if you needed it. But they were also there to remind you the gifts that you were born with. Like your mom telling you that, hello, you were not born to be a nurse. I was. You were born to be a writer. Like, how incredible is that? I mean, I'm not going to say that they weren't worried. I think they were like, what if she starves to death? And I was like, I'm not going to starve to death. Also. My father had to live away for a couple of years because of his job. 
So it was my mom and I. Did his job for engineering bring him around the U.S. and stuff? Yeah, he was kind of posted to different places. Like he had to live in Texas for two years and he lived in Kentucky for two years and kind of managed the construction of large plants and the cleanup of sites and things. So he would, he would, he did like the ordering materials and things like that. He also never graduated from college. He doesn't have an engineering degree. I think he kind of went through about two years of college and he basically got into this big company as a I forget what level he came in at, but one of the things that he did was he had been a sharpshooter in the Marines and he was brought into the team that was developing bulletproof plexiglass. And so he used to do the shooting and things like that. And then he kind of came in as a materials engineer and worked his way in. So he was an engineer. He worked in the engineering department. His title was engineer, but he doesn't have an engineering degree, which hobbled him in a lot of ways, but he also did the job. I respect hustlers so much. That reminds me of my dad who came literally with nothing from Taiwan to America with nothing, like maybe 80, 80 US dollars, 100 US dollars and hustled his way up. He had to stop schooling at the end of middle school because his dad passed away and had to help take care of his family. Your dad and my dad, they're so similar. I have so much admiration for both of your parents. They're so cool. I'm like, they need to be on this show so I can talk to them too. But yes, sorry, you may no, go on. Continue. I mean, yes. My mother, so my mother got her nursing degree and she was made a professor upon graduation. Basically, her scores were like super high and they're like, you're just going to be a professor now. And so she immediately started on her bachelor's degree. So all the time I was growing up, my mother had her nursing degree, but then also got her bachelor's degree and then got her master's degree and then got her nurse practitionership at, at the University of Pennsylvania. And so she was going to school up until probably, I'm going to say maybe 1995, something like that. And she also nursed the whole family because we have a lot of elderly members of our family. So she did the physical nursing care for a lot of people. So she worked full time and she went to school to get all these extra degrees. And she was physically the person going and, you know, working and helping people in bed, making sure, you know, turning them and making sure they did their walking. And so she never stopped. In fact, my mother used to wake up at 430 in the morning. So she would have an extra half hour to relax. Like she would get up at 430 so she could just sit and do needlepoint and listen to the radio for a half an hour. Because she was like, oh, that's my time to relax. I have a cup of coffee and I just sit and before my day starts, I'm like, I would never do that. She is intense. I mean, she retired now and she still has about 20 jobs and she goes to an amazing church where it's like an incredibly diverse congregation and she helps run their kitchen where they cook and they serve meals to the community. So she serves lunch to people and they, they stock a pantry and she does like all kinds of stuff she's every she's also I think this is a lot of nurses she's everybody's nurse she's always the person that shows up at somebody's bedside so she and when I got really sick because I got a bad illness four years ago my mother basically nursed me back to health so she is wow. she's intense like yeah she's incredible they're also both insane like I also want to say that that they're both like they're also, um, am I allowed to swear? I mean, because I have, I mean. You are, definitely, because I curse left and right. Let me tell you. I love it's them. Terrible. I love them. They're both completely bug fucked. My mother, if she could just put me in a giant hamster bubble to this day, and I am a, I don't know if you know this, a grown-ass adult. 
And she's still like, Maureen, why are you still out? I'm like, it's 6.30, mom. And I am an adult. She's like, I'm just worried about you. The perfect illustration of my mom's attitude was when I was a kid, actually not a kid. I'm like 19 or 18. I'm like, I need to drive. And she's like, what if something happens to you? I'm like, nothing is ever going to happen to me. And she said to me once, you can't get your learner's permit until you have more experience. And I was like, and therein <laughs> lies my exact problem in one sentence. I'm so fucking doomed. One time I wanted to go to like the teen dance club that all the people in my school went to. First of all, she called the local police precinct. And at the time I'm 15 or something and I want to go because everybody goes. And she calls and they're like, oh ma'am, I wouldn't, you know, a lot of those kids there, 16 or 17, I'm not sure I would allow your kid to go. She said, and they said, we wish more parents would call. And I was like, this fucking guy, <laughs> what are you doing to me? It was a teen dance club. Like, you just go there, you listen to some terrible music, you have some big ass hair, you all get high on just the hairspray fumes that are coming off. Like, no, no bad activity is happening. It's literally just a lame teen dance club. The thing was, I was a year younger. I went to school early, so I was a year younger than all my classmates. So when I'm 15, oh. all of my friends, like everybody was 16 because that was just the age. And I'm like, so you're saying I literally can't hang out with people in my own class? I don't understand what you want from me. Like, I don't understand how to do Hence the, I must get out of here, but any means possible. You can draw some really fucking amazing stories from that for your writing. Just having that kind of upbringing that most people do not have, because I feel like we are very similar in that upbringing in that way, where we were very bubbled and sheltered and not a lot because we're so precious. Our parents are just so protective or it's like when I retell these stories to my friends or like new people that I meet, they're like, what? That is so crazy. You need to write that shit down. I was like, doesn't everybody go through that? They're like, no. So you're like one of the only other few people I've met that actually shared a pretty similar upbringing to me. And I'm pretty sure that gives you a shit ton to pull from for your stories. Yeah. So you just stand out even more. People always ask, they're like, oh, do you write YA? Because you did all of these things. I'm like, I don't know how I write YA because I was never allowed to do anything. Maureen, I do want to also ask you, you going into theater, how did that come about? Because I'm like, just trying to put the pieces together. You've always been writing, no matter what you do. You've always been writing about everything, even while you were a dramaturg, while you're involved with theater. But what was it for theater that you had this calling for, this gravitation towards? Why? Always loved it. Always wanted to do it. It's like as in being an actor or like behind the scenes. Oh, I did decent amount of acting in college. I was in a lot of plays. Um, That's awesome. So, I, yeah, I did a lot of acting in college. More acting than production. I definitely did more acting. I was the person you called in for certain comic roles of, like, the weirdo in the play. They're like, get Maureen. She's right there. Go get her. And I, because I kind of see it as the same thing. And it's storytelling in a group. I always like working in groups when I can, because writing is very solitary. But then when I'm also working in a group, I'm like, I actually prefer working on my own. So, you know, it's just good that I'm always be able to, to flip to the other thing. But I really like making things with other people. 
I love that aspect. And so most of my really good friends from that time are actually the theater people. The person who's my agent now, her name is Kate. And she and I were friends from college and we met in theater together. Oh, so wait, your literary agent mm-hmm. was... Went to college with me. So she went to college with you. Was she an actor in the theater world with you or was she behind the scenes? I think she did more behind the scenes. Oh. I think she was probably in one play. I don't know. If I'm, if I get that wrong, Kate, don't yell at me. But I, you know, I, she definitely did a lot of the um, behind the scenes and the organizational stuff. And then we moved to London together when we graduated. And then we moved to New York together. I went to Columbia and she went to work in the publishing industry. And so she really crawled her way up. She went to work for an agency called Janko and Nesbitt, which is a very storied and illustrious literary agency that had like giant clients. Like their clients are like the Pope, you know, people like that. Or, you know, Hunter S. Thompson would send in and, you know, um, Tom Wolf would walk through the office. You know, it was, it's, it's that kind of place. That was way too coincidental. Like, did oh, she influence the author or did you influence her to become literary agent? Or you both just developed an interest in the world of books at the same time That's individually? Part, like, partially why we were friends is that we had a similar set of interests. And she went into the industry side. I was always the writer side. And so when I was in writing school, she, without my knowledge, was showing some of the pieces I was writing in school to some of the agents. And so I had... Oh, so sweet. I had, Girl has got to back. Yeah, I had agents kind of scoping me and like big agents scoping me. So they're like, hey, we like this. Just one to watch. So um, she is a lot of the reason I made some of the connections that I did. And she was the one that got me into YA. She's like, you should write YA. And I was like, what is that? And she told me, and I was like, ha that's stupid. I would never be able to do that because I was never allowed to do anything as a teenager. And I was completely repressed. And she's like, well, I think you can, and I think you should try. And I was like, I can't, and to prove it to you, I will try, and you will see what a failure I am at it. And here I am. So here you are. Here I am. And she, wow. she explained so it to both me. Both of you. Yeah. Damn. And she was the one that was telling the agency what YA was and what a big deal it was going to be. And she became their first YA agent. Oh, damn. Good for her. Okay. This is a little bit of a sidetrack, but maybe it's just my family growing up. My mom always told me there are certain people in your life. There's a Chinese saying called yin. And that means it's the only English word I could think of that's similar to it is like fate. And there's people in your life that you don't know why they're in your life for any reason, but a lot of times they bring you a lot of good luck and help you along for your destiny. Or I believe that we can all change our destinies, but so it's not trying to sound religious or anything. It's just more spiritual as in like, there's something bigger than us. And that it sounds like your bestie and you are in each other's lives. Mm -hmm. You have like this crisscross kind of path that you guys were like destined to meet each other and to be besties and to like, help each other grow and evolve as people and also towards your career. So I thought that was beautiful. Like yeah. your relationship I, with your bestie. Like she's my agent. She's a great YA literary agent. She eventually left New York and she moved to Denver because she met an amazing guy and he lived in Denver and he had a, a cool daughter and she really, they needed to be out there. And so she moved to Denver and she opened up her own agency there. 
and she has her good for her. Yeah. So she runs her agency out of Denver. Oh, here comes the moop again. Come on. And hello, and uh, <laughs> she is um yeah, she she's an amazing YA agent and she yeah, so we're very we're like we are like that. We are very much together. That's Come on, it's okay, girl. That's we got a moopy dog. Um, I love Denver, by the way. That's so random because my girlfriend booked us a random ass flight out of nowhere to Denver on Monday through Wednesday just for fun. Um, because she has this credit card that allows just it ends at the end of this year. The credit card is linked up with Southwest. Hey, little boop, yeah. Okay. Um, that credit card allows you to fly with a free companion, but you have to choose like one companion, mm-hmm. like every time for the year of 2018. So we didn't really use that card. So she's worried she wasn't going to be able to make the most out of the deal. So she just booked a flight to Denver because we've both been wanting to check out the beer scene, although we can't really drink beer because we're both kind of allergic to gluten. But um, but we also want to check out the hiking scene and have a few friends there. So I'm headed there this Monday through Wednesday. So I love that you mentioned that your bestie's from yeah. Denver because that was like a fun little it's super small. He- it's super healthy. Like everybody in Denver, from what I can tell, they wake up, they look at the mountains, they like go on a bike ride to work. And then yeah. they like do their thing and then they like go out on their porch and breathe some more nice mountain air. And then they, I don't know. They have a thing called. Yeah. And I mean, you go out and you get a giant view of the mountain. Like when you leave the Denver airport, you can see for what seems like a billion miles and it's because it's very flat. And then you see the mountains and I'm always like, what is this view you speak of? Like you see that from the airport? Yeah. I'm so excited. Okay. So she basically was the one who introduced YA to you. Like you were like, what the hell is YA? And she's like, girl, trust me, just get into it. And you're like, no, I don't have experience because I was locked up. But in the end, you ended up blowing everybody away and killing it at YA. This is 2003. So, I mean, the number of YA books out were, I think it was like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. So I was like, what is this? And my first book came out in 2004. I wrote other stuff. That's not the 13 Little Blue no. Envelopes that came out in 2005. That came out in 2005. My first book was called The Key to the Gold. It's actually right here. Hold on. This is the first edition of the oh, first yeah. one. It's very, yeah. Hey, original cover? This is the original cover, yeah. Uh, it looks super trendy. That looks like what's in right now. Yeah, I know. And it's, yeah, April... 29, so 2000, 2004 was beautiful. Yeah, it's very, yeah. It was, this is, and it's a little, little like, you can see that it's pale on the, on the spine here uh, from. Can you remove the flap? What's the color of the inside? It's yellow. Yeah, I love yellow. And the cover image is, in, oh, you can't see it, but it's embossed with the girl. I don't know if you can sort of. Yes, it's shiny. It's a little sheen. <gasps> and then, I love Yellow. And then I wrote this one called The Bermuda Triangle, which is about three girls who are best friends and then what happens when two of them start dating and how you like manage friendship and dating. So yeah, and I also wrote a lot of books about threes for some reason. Threes seem to be a thing. The key, the key to the Golden Firebird is about three sisters and how they re- their father dies and the sort of things that happen after their right, father right. dies. And then the main character starts dating her friend. You know, what happens when you date a friend and like what what happens when your friend likes you or you like your friend? And this is that dynamic. This one it was a similar group of three and what happens when you date a friend. Like how mm-hmm. dynamics change and this was like also internally 
like the third person was trying to be supportive, but at the same time was like, I don't get to do everything with them now. Like they need their own time. And also, but I, we used to do everything together and now I'm going to be on my own for tonight and I don't know what to do with myself. And this is a little weird, but I have to figure out how to do it. So gotcha. like she's trying to be supportive, but at the same time, she's like, it also sucks a little bit because we used to do all this stuff together and now I guess I'll watch a movie, you know? So then okay. 13 Little envelopes, which is sort of the point where I made people seem to be most aware of is that came the next year. And it also okay. has a three gotcha. in the title. There's a lot of three. <laughs> a lot of three. Okay. It's a lucky number. There we go. Truly Devious mm-hmm. came out early this year, 2018, January 16th, actually. And then your second one in your Truly Devious series is coming out January 22nd, 2019, mm-hmm. which is insane because that's so close, the timeline. Isn't that like, that's usually tough, like to, to get it in within exactly one year, the second that way. book. Yeah, and the third one, it was, the, oh. the third one will come out the following January. Oh, okay, 2020. Yep. Yep. Okay, got it. Is it your paperback that's also coming in December? Yes, the paperback for Truly Devious is coming on the 4th of December. That's awesome. Give us a snapshot of what Truly Devious is about. Also, a snapshot of the part two, which is The Vanishing Stare. Are you still there, guys? I just want to see if they're still there. I'm just looking at the chat now. I just want to see if they're... Oh, there they are. They're so there they are. Thank you, ladies. You're awesome. I want to shout out to you guys. Because it's good that Patreon is a great invention. I use Patreon yeah, for, sure. I have a political podcast with my friend, Dan, who is this amazing. I did not know that. Yeah. What is it called? Let us know. It's called Says Who. And I do it with my friend, Dan Sinker, who is a super cool guy. And the first thing he made was, he made a magazine called Punk Planet that was a lot of people's favorite magazine. Like it was like a, it was a small but super popular magazine. He's just a super cool guy. So th- we use Patreon to support it, and it has been a game changer. It is and the Patreon. We were just floored when we started the Patreon. Do you mind if I just ask for a little bit of advice because this is kind of new, and I just feel very. Um, I don't know what it is, but I feel almost. I don't want to say. Im- embarrassed to ask for like support but I definitely grew up with my dad saying never ever ask for help you just do it so I felt almost like ashamed to even ask our listeners to even check it out but then I had to literally talk to everybody in my life and they're like do it Ian, what is wrong with letting them know there's an option to support you if they're able to because I'm like but they're working so hard for their dollars. Like, I don't want them to feel pressure. Then it's like, okay, then it's up to them if they want to, if they can. And if not, then it's okay. I'm like, okay, then I like that kind of mm-hmm. perspective. So do you feel like Patreon has helped oh, yeah. support? We just started, we started it three weeks ago, the Patreon. And it went, like, it was amazing. And here's why, oh. here's where, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is my counseling. First of all, it is okay to ask for help. But actually, you're not asking for help. It's just that if you are making something that people like and are like, I am a giant podcast listener. I'm an addict. I have a real problem. These things are always in my ears. I'm pointing to my ear pods. Like they're always, always in. I'm, if my husband walks by, he'll be like, I can verify that they are always in. And I rely on them. Like they keep me sane through politics and all that especially a lot of the comedy ones i listen to or some ones that are history comedy that are and i'm like i want to give you money 
so that you can continue doing this so you don't have to shut down. And also, first of all, if you, someone makes something you really like and appreciate, I mean, I always feel weird when I'm like, I wrote a book. Will you buy it? I'm always, and then I'm always apologizing. I'm like, I'm really sorry. You know, like, I'm sorry I'm about that. No way. But you know what? It's the, it's the same. It's the same thing you're doing right now, where you create something and then you're vaguely apologetic for asking for actual funds to contribute towards the making. It's the same exact thing. If you make a thing, there's nothing wrong. I, I'm always apologetic about asking people to pay for my book and at the same time I'm like I wrote a book like yeah like it we do actually need money to keep doing these things and I understand if you, and I'm always like or go to the library it's totally fine I'm like a hundred percent I'm a million percent I'm more I cannot express my fineness about getting going to the library for it but if people make a podcast and they can contribute and the people in your patreon feed right now are probably telling you this <laughs> right now I would imagine they're like that's why we're here and also it's if you get the extra thing like the little perk is really nice you know if I give five dollars to one they're like we'll get you tickets early if you'd like to go see the show I'm like yes I would like to see the show thank you for giving me the chance to get the tickets early thank you for giving me a chance to connect with other people that talk about this thing that I really like thank you for making this stuff and sometimes even the dollar you know like you give a dollar and it gives people a chance to do the best thing and so People like your podcast. Your podcast is super, super, super popular. People enjoy it. People rely on it. People who like books and people who want to write and people who are interested in this process rely on you to make the podcast. So we are happy to give you the money to make the thing that we love. So like you've made a thing. Yes, you see, you guys, I have to explain this to her, right? Did you agree with me, right? No, like you, they, they're like, yes, that's why we're here. We've tried to tell her. Now you tell her. Like, no, we are trying to give you money so that you can like don't that is what the internet comic take my money is about like when people are like take my money you know like that's what this is about is if you make this thing that we really like please here have a money for it also before i went i made the patreon for hours i went and i looked up the green brothers and their 97 products and every single one of those has a patreon like sideshow and like every single one of them has a patreon and i was like you guys are on top of this but also they have built in that like every time people contribute you can make more stuff i'm gonna tell you another thing a lot of times it's, it's female creators who are more apologetic about asking to get compensation yes that is a very good point i noticed that too yeah mm -hmm. men have no problem yeah. asking they're like they're very like well i did this so i expect it there are certain ones i've seen guys are just like yeah give me the money kind of attitude where I'm just like, oh my goodness, that's kind of rude. Like, I, I hope I never come off like that. You know what I mean? So it's just, but yes, you're so right about women being the ones who are always the ones who are way more apologetic and afraid to ask or just mention there is this avenue if you'd like to show support, you know, as an option. Yeah, you're not, Definitely. you're not like I am, asking, I mean, you're making a thing. And if people, mm -hmm. and you're not even like, you have to pay. It's, it's not about, you're like, you're not even saying you have to pay. You're like, if you'd like to. Also, if you yeah. do so, I will give you more stuff. I made you a thing. And they're like, thank you. We've been trying to take this money. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you're so sweet. Thank you. That is a good point. Because when I put out a survey, we had an influx of people 
answering questions that took an average of 20 minutes to answer. And I just, it blew my mind that we had that many people answer. And quite a few of them were like, Yin, just do me a favor, just do something or create something, whether it's merch, whether it's a sweater, whether it's a tote bag or whatever, or subscription thing or whatever, so that I can give you my money. And I'm like, what? Am I reading this correctly? What is this? This is crazy. Like, I just couldn't believe that I read that. And even after reading that, I still felt like I didn't have the right to even mention a Patreon. You know what I mean? Like, it was so strange. But that's why I'm grateful when I do talk to somebody else who is doing something similar and has that similar channel of a Patreon to then dish it out and like preach at me. So it's like a reminder, like, hey, it's okay. You're thinking too much. You're like, it's also because you actually, I mean, again, I'm someone who has been writing books for years and I'm, and I'm vaguely apologetic when people buy my book. They're like, I bought your book. I'm like, oh, oh, you did. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. And they're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just kind of wretched. You know, like, I, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. We can maybe discuss that later. Would you like money? I'll just give me the book. I'll, I'll get rid of it. I'll throw it in the river. You know, it's, but at the same time, I see female creators doing this all the time where they're like, I made a thing, but I feel so terrible asking people to pay to make a thing. So you lose money making, you need to buy a microphone, you rent space, you do, you take, it's your time, but it's also resources. And so we made the Patreon. We're like, we can maybe no longer lose money doing this. And then people all hopped on and they're like, here you go. Thank you for making the thing. Yes. Okay. Thank you. You are an perfect example. You guys, I fixed it, right? Like, I'm trying here. I'm trying to tell her. Seriously. But you you already know. Like The people in the comments, they already know. They're like, we have been trying to tell her. I don't know. We haven't been getting through. We're not sure what to do. We're we're, we're climbing up here. You know, we're trying to shove money through the window. Like, here's $20. Take it. What do we got to do? Thank you so much, Maureen. Okay, give me, tell me the name of your podcast one more time and the Patreon link because I want to go check out your Patreon after. Oh. Like, I, I personally love supporting other podcasts too. So, give me the link. What is your link? It's called Says Who. So, the Patreon is patreon.com slash says who. And it's, okay. it's called Says Who because way back during, because it, it was the original premise was it because Dan is a journalist, is that in the lead up to the 2016 election, to try to deal with that last crunch of time we were going to talk to eight journalists about what was going on so um we talked to amazing so it was only supposed to be an eight week project eight week project and we talked to amazing people like we had one of our first guests was chris hayes from msnbc our first guest was anna marie cox our second guest was chris hayes like we had amazing guests and we're like it's an eight week in or out project and then he won and we're like hmm and then we just kind of kept going like like a kind of it was the, it's the Gilligan's Island of podcast where we're like, we're just still going. We accidentally meant out to go for three hours and here we are two years later. Um, and we talked to journalists and all kinds of people about, and at this point, it's just a coping strategy. It's just two people kind of losing their minds about. Say that after. It's wonderful, almost therapeutic. Yeah, it's called it, our little catchphrase is it's not a podcast, it's a coping strategy. It's just two people. I'm so to your podcast. I'm very excited about this because I'm feeling very, for me, I've been feeling very lost and I get very extremely sensitive and emotional to the point where sometimes I can't even wake up and get out of bed. Yeah. Like it affects me that much. And I, and I noticed it affects now 
a lot of people throughout America in that way too. And we need something like an outlet and also this coping mechanism by listening to things too. Hence why I am damn grateful that you are creating something like this and making it available for people like us out here. So I'm checking out your podcast with your buddy and I'm going to your Patreon page, lady. Oh, I saw a question popped up in the side. Do you want me to? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'm going to read. Oh, no, Courtney, she has to leave now. But thanks so much for giving us the opportunity to listen in. This is awesome. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you so much, Courtney. So she says, do you want to read it? Why don't you read it, Maureen? All right. One of the, my favorite aspects of your book, thank you, are the strong, unique voices of the character. Yeah, it's always embarrassing to read phrases. I think, I'm sorry. Something you're sorry. One of my favorite aspects of your books are the strong, unique voices of the characters. Specifically, your characters are really funny, but your plots are dark. Some of them are. They're not all dark, but some of them are. Any advice on how to toe the line between funny while still creating a darker atmosphere? Yeah, I, so they're not, I have written some comedies, but the Truly Devious is a straight up murder mystery. And you asked about Truly Devious earlier. So Truly Devious, I'm a murder mystery obsessive. That is my big thing. I am an absolute murder mystery freak always has been since the time i was a child first full-length book i read was the hound of the baskervilles i was addicted 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 and still am to mysteries i mean my summers were spent reading two agatha christie's a day my first fiction crush was hastings Poirot's assistant who is an idiot by the way which i didn't realize at the time so I was like, who who among us when they're 13 is not in love with a middle-aged English man who is the uh, compatriot of a, of a Belgian detective? Uh, me, apparently. But I wanted to write a pure mystery. It's straight up mystery. I am breaking the rules by putting it over three books. Putting it over three books was a challenge. Uh, I don't know if I would put it over three books again because I believe that mysteries really should be one book. But it was going to be a big overarching kind of, it's a lot of story because it's about a school in Vermont called Ellingham Academy, which was established in 1936 by a man named Albert Ellingham, who was one of the biggest tycoons of America. He was a, he was a super rich man. Um, and his, he established this kind of school for innovators and thinkers, and you didn't have to have money to go there. He just brought people there and everything's paid for. It's this beautiful, crazy campus in the mountains of Vermont and it's got he also loves games and puzzles so it's got uh twisting pathways and secret tunnels and there's all kinds of jokes built into the architecture and the landscape and he built it and he had a giant mansion on the property and his wife and his daughter were kidnapped one day and his wife was found dead at the same time, on the night of the kidnapping, one of the students from Ellingham disappeared and was found dead later on. And his daughter was never found. His little his little girl was never found. And her name is Alice. And it was considered like the crime of the century. And while a man was arrested and tried for it, most people believe that he didn't actually do it. And the present day story, which is a, it is a present day story, it's about this girl named Stevie Bell who's obsessed with crime and wants to be, she wants to be a detective. So this is a detective story with a detective in it. The detective is Stevie and she gets into Ellingham because Ellingham doesn't have any admission requirements. You basically send them a letter that explains your thing that you do. And they accept people who basically have a thing. You're a maker, a creator, and you write, you have a idea for something and they take people 
based on sort of their passion and their profile. Uh, and she gets in because she wants to be a detective and she wants to solve the Ellingham case. She is amazed that she gets in. She has major imposter syndrome, like, like my dog. She kind of believes that everyone else there is smarter and better and more talented and that she, she was probably let in as a clerical error, but she wants to solve this case. She gets up there and another student dies. And she believes it is a murder. So this story intertwines from the past and the present. And the title comes from the fact that in 1936, there was a letter sent to the Ellingham family that was this riddle. It was riddle, riddle, time for fun. Shall we use a rope or gun? And it's this whole kind of messed up letter about various ways that this person wants to kill the family. And it's signed Truly Devious. And so mm, it's okay. about solving the mystery of Truly Devious. And so the three book, part two, The Vanishing Stare, starts pretty much exactly where Truly Devious leaves off. So the books are completely locked together as a set. They can't be read separately. They're just a, one continuous story. Okay, I'm going to jump in really quick here because just talking about earlier on your obsession with true crimes and also thinking about podcasts because there's that super popular podcast. My favorite murder. Two ladies. My favorite murder. <laughs> that one, sorry. Yes. Was there a specific story that actually happened in real life that inspired this plot? There's a couple. It, it has a lot of elements of, uh, or has shades yeah. of um, the Lindbergh kidnapping, which was uh, Charles Lindbergh, who was the first man to fly across the Atlantic, was pretty much the biggest hero of the world in the 1930s, and he was became rich. He was he was one of the world's great celebrities, like. J.K. Rowling level, you know, like just giant, amazing hero. And um, one night, somebody put a ladder up against his house and climbed up and took his baby out of the cradle and left a ransom note uh, basically on the windowsill. And the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby was considered basically, there's a lot of crimes of the century, but it was considered a crime of the century. And the baby was found dead. I forget how long ago it was, like, it was like a couple weeks afterwards they they found the baby there was a man tried you know there's always been questions about his name was bruno hopman and whether or not he was guilty or innocent so there's definitely shades of the Lindbergh kidnapping in there i have goosebumps everywhere just from this story oh yeah the, oh my gosh like yeah and he you know he, because he was i mean charles Lindbergh wasn't a big hero he was also in retrospect, historically, people look back on Charles Lindbergh, and there are a lot of questions about Charles Lindbergh because he was really into eugenics and things like that. So not not great, but yeah, it was this kidnapping and murder of his child. I mean, it it was the, every headline in the world was about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, and I believe it was it was either thirty, maybe thirty six, thirty five, thirty six, thirty. It was one of those years. It was right in the same period that I'm talking about, but there was a spate of uh, kidnappings, bombings, but it was kind of a golden age of kidnapping a little bit in the 1930s. Cause it's, oh, interesting. I know that. So um, there are there are a lot of historical nods there to strange cases. And there's another case, a different case called Leopold and Loeb, which um, was about these two kind of rich, this was in the 20s, it was two rich kids that one was like really obsessed with theoretically committing the perfect murder and so they they kidnapped and killed this kid from the neighborhood just kind of for funsies 
to sort of prove that they could do it. And the fuck wrong with people? Oh my god! And I don't understand. So it it became it, there's a movie an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Rope that's like kind of based on it, but it's in the, the Leopold and Low case they actually killed a child, and they were caught because they weren't as smart as they thought they were. Yeah, so there was some like you know, this is the era of, you know, when we kind of think of the golden age of crime and crime writing, there's a lot of stuff happening in the, like the twenties, the thirties, the forties, like, you know, and the, and the, the lock, you know, that has, there's a lot of nods to classic mysteries. Like you're in the locked house, you know, you're at, you're in the mansion in the mountains where, you know, the suspect must be among you. Like some of the person who did it must be somebody here. And um, the way that the person dies in Truly Devious, it took me a long time. I started with the crime and worked backwards. So I basically wrote these backwards. I started with why why this happened, who did it, and why it happened. And then I kind of spiraled out from there because mysteries are puzzles. And you have to start with, like, that's how I did it. I worked backwards. Uh, Do you mind me jumping in and asking really quick, like, technical approach to that? Were you using, like, a writing program or just straight up index cards and placing it on the wall I do to that. keep yourself organized? I do both of that. Both? Like I have a big whiteboard, which I often put um, post-its on that I can rearrange. It's right behind here. I'm pointing at it like you can see. I actually have a solutions folder that has, so the case, I have all the solutions from the 1936 case and all the present day solutions and how they fit together. So I have it. Ooh. I basically, when I created it, I made this. I'm, I'm doing a lot of gestures that you can't see, but I made a folder of solutions that I, the editors got. Like, I'm like, here's here's who did it, and here's how it was done. Here's who did it in the past. Here's who did it in the present. Here's all the stuff. You also have a timeline to help you put those notes together. Yeah, because you as ha- well? you have to have every clue has to be carefully placed. Okay. I have to know like time signatures of stuff and you know who's standing where, who's who can see what, you know, really placing the characters into position to make sure that everybody is turned the right, you know. But uh, because I work from the back, I then spin forward and make sure that everybody is placed where they need to be. And you know, you can you can think of stuff along the way where you're like, oh wait, that would be good if this happened. And now I have to just go back. And check to make sure that in book one, if I want to put this one thing in, I just have to make sure that everything lines up, you know, check the notes so that everybody is where they need to be. I also make myself sound a lot more organized than I am. Frequently, this is also done on, um, while I have all this stuff, I like to end up scrawling on yellow legal pads. Okay, that's really helpful. Listeners who might be working on their own mysteries and trying to put in pieces and puzzles what is something that you came across and you're like, ah, oh, shit, I got to remember to do this a little differently with the next book that I'm working on. So it helps me with my flow and efficiency. Like, is there anything that you can advise to our or, or give tips to our listeners to remember as they're crafting? Mysteries are puzzles. I mean, I say this, I really am one of these mystery watchers, readers, like obsessive about this. Mysteries are puzzles. You got to know your pieces. So I, you know, a clue folder, an actual folder of these are the points that I've laid down, and also the things that could potentially be, because you layer in stuff that you may not. Some of the that's the thing is that you also put in stuff that's deliberately not used. 
that people are like that's going to be a clue and then it isn't but you know so you, you you have to put down 10 objects and maybe four of them are clues i worked from the back and i changed it a couple times before i i settled on it it had a different it had a different set of characters it it was me endlessly talking about this because one of the major issues I had to work through was how to extend a mystery over three books. That was the first and hardest. I gave myself the hardest possible thing to do because mysteries really need to be wrapped up in one book. So I had to figure out how to come to three solutions because there had to be an ending for book one, which two people yell about the end of book one, which I get. But there had to be three decisive ending points where you got solutions enough book one had to provide enough of a solution the book two has to pro- provide a lot more and then book three mm-hmm. provides all like you get all ever it's like now i'm writing book three where you you get a lot in book two and then everything is laid bare in book three so oh wow okay so that kind of ties in with tatiana's question where she said she's not writing a mystery but she always wonders, how are you able to pace out the puzzle pieces? So I know that you're mentioning that is the most difficult part was to just break it into three. So then how did you, then to dig it like a layer further, how did you figure out what belongs in three and what belongs in two, what belongs in one? Uh, I chunked it up first. So I kind of said book one will cover, at uh, first I covered what I call body drops. So I was you you a good murder mystery will give you a body. So I had to make sure okay where were the bodies going to be dropped? At? Who dies and why? And so and when? So you basically I'm like I guarantee you a body in every book. You know just making sure that I had to place. You know that's what a murder mystery is. You have to like put them in. If there's a body, then this is why it happened here. So that's good about mysteries is that the crime and the entry of the detective anchors the action where the murders occur is key. So a lot of it's anchored around that. Once you kind of establish your big anchors, knowing that you're getting the solutions here, you're dropping your bodies here, that's more than you get in a lot of books where you're like, anything could happen, you know? (laughs) And you don't have to be like, no, I actually have to provide a murder or I haven't written a murder mystery. And then you have to provide a murder at a certain, you can't provide the murder five, six, the way of through the book. Generally, you can always do things if you're clever and you have a way, but like generally a murder mystery is going to require that you put that body down in the first, you know, third of a book. People are like, well, it's a 300 page book and you murdered the guy on page 297. Thanks for nothing. So that's not much of a, of a game. So how do you know all of this, like all these technical skills of like placing what where is this something that you talk for example to your literary agent slash bestie like is this something that you talked about it with her or you just kind of read your own books that you love Uh, I mean from other authors and you're like okay you kind of saw how they did it is this something that you just naturally knew intuitively or you actually had people to discuss it with because I'm just like damn I would not have known what to do well I mean no, I don't. I don't do story stuff with Kate. I do. I mean, my job is, you know, because it's our job. My job is to write story and to to think and talk about yeah. story structure all the time. And because I am such a big mystery reader, to read a lot, read a, okay. a metric shit ton of mysteries and clock devices, timing, method. I I was I when I got into this, I was making charts of murders and mo- like types of murders, motives, 
you know, I had motive charts and I had, when you really get into story craft, you break down the nuts and bolts of it's a, it's a process. It's a craft. I know, for example, you've interviewed Holly Black. Yeah. Well, Holly's, she's awesome. Holly's one of my really good friends. And when we, Oh my God. Yeah. Hey, small world. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot. Of, so there's, I have a group of YA writer friends that we spend a lot of time together. So Holly is definitely one of them. Holly is a story craft genius. Uh, Kathy Clare, Sarah Reese Brennan, uh, Robin Wasserman, Kelly Link. Like they're all, we're all really good friends. And we will frequently write, we write together, we travel together and we sit and we work story together and we talk about stories. Okay. Gotcha. So, like a workshop group. Yeah. And we, uh, like we, we go to places together and we help each other with, with books. And we'll spend hours and 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 hours talking about plot mechanics. So I have to say, Holly, there's there's very few people as good as Holly in terms of talking about plot mechanics. She's brilliant. Wow. And her field is, you know, she's really, she writes fantasy generally. So when you, the thing that you do, you kind of have to know it all the way down to the ground. And I was like, why wasn't I writing mystery before? It's the thing I know all the way down to the ground. What I'm terrible at is romance. What I'm good at is mystery. Like, but you often don't do the thing that you really love because you're like, but how can I do the thing I love? It's impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cannot mm-hmm. do. Sure. Who can make? Only mm-hmm. magic people. And then I was like, oh, but I've only been doing this since I was five. You know, like I really crazily obsessed. So yeah, no, I love mysteries. And uh, I could talk mysteries uh, until my face fell off. I appreciate you letting us get a peek oh. inside your brain about this. Uh, that was amazing. Let me just, do you mind if we just scroll through and, and just see sure. there's one or two questions? I think, what was it? Elizabeth Newton asked, what are some of the challenges in writing so many amazing series? And maybe I'll read the next question for you so you can kind of like brainstorm in the back of your head. Uh, Tia was asking, are there any plans on adding any more books to the Starlet series? And then Tatiana, oh my God, she's so sweet. She's like, I'm literally getting dressed right now so I could go to the bookstore after this is done. Tatiana, you're the Thank best. You, Tatiana. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs> you're so sweet. And I know listeners, they're amazing because they always go out and support our guests. All right. So let's just get to Elizabeth's question, which is, what are some of the challenges in writing so many amazing series? <laughs> Oh, it's just great. You know, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, writing, I can't writing is hard. And um, if this sounds like a pretentious statement, like that you'd read in a book that has no relevance in life, but you really do learn to write each book by writing that book. And then you learn to write the next book. They're all different. And every single time I'll hit a point where I'm like, well, I don't know how to write books. And I'm like, my problem is I just don't know how to write books. And people are like, eh. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I really have no idea what I'm doing. Until you kind of cross the Rubicon where you're like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing again. You just, you write one book at a time. Even when you're writing two books at a time, you write one book at a time. And you learn to write that book when you write it. And you will always feel like you have no idea what you're doing. That's natural. Everybody I know feels that way. I you know I have two series that are open right now. The one is called The Shades of London, and there is a fourth book coming. It is delayed. It got delayed because I got sick because I possessed a human body and it failed me. And when I got sick, it delayed it and it messed up the publishing schedule. We're trying to work out a bunch of technical stuff that went wrong because we are human people that you know stuff happens to sometimes. 
And there is a, there also also a third book due in the what's called the Scarlet series, which is a purely comedy series. Um, and so there is also yeah. So the Truly Devious series is going to be finished before those other two series, but the other two are still very much in the works. I never say die. Like it's you know they they are coming. They just got delayed. Oh, amazing. Okay, I love that you knocked out two of the questions from Tia and Elizabeth when Tia was asking if there was going to be more books to the Scarlet series. So that was incredible. All right. So let us know where can we find you on social media? I am on Twitter a lot at Maureen Johnson. And my website is MaureenJohnsonBooks.com. Okay, I'm on um, Twitter far too much. So I'm always there. Maureen, I love this so much. And I'm grateful I got to meet you over the video. That was really fun. And thank you for being the inaugural person episode to kick this off, by the way. When they were like, Maureen, what do you want to do? And I was like, I have one request. It's for 88 cups of tea. Like, come on. Like, it's my one thing. It was like at the top of every list. I was like, are you kidding me with this? Like, it's the best. Oh, my God. Girl, you are just blowing up my head. Stop it now. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing because your podcast is legendary. And that wraps up our episode with Maureen Johnson. Maureen, thank you so much for blowing up my head and thank you for real for that really fun conversation. I loved kicking off our inaugural live stream video with you and thank you for being on the show. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to head over to Maureen's show notes page for all the books and resources mentioned in her episode over at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Maureen dash Johnson. If you'd love to show support for 88 Cups of Tea, please head over to 88 Cups of Tea's Patreon page to learn more about all the different tiers and fun perks available, including the 888 tier for early access to upcoming episodes. Last but not least, please be sure to drop by and say hi to Maureen on Twitter, at Maureen Johnson. Have a great week, and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.